0: Good morning. Happy long weekend to you. Happy Pentecost Sunday. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a smart device or whatever you read the Bible on, uh, open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. That's Ephesians chapter 6 uh, and verse 10. We've got a couple weeks uh, before we jump into our next series here as a church. And so on this Pentecost Sunday as a one-off, uh, what I wanted to do this morning is uh, actually pick up right where the book of Daniel left off. And so if you remember uh, where we finished up, Daniel chapter 12, uh, God was saying to Daniel, hey, be confident in the end. I've got you. Your name is written in the book of life. Hey, you're a believer. You love the Lord. You love me. I've got you at the end. And at the end, you will stand in your allotted place and you will rest, Daniel. But if you remember, uh, the other thing that God says to him is until the end, You're going to face trials and tribulations, so go on your way, Daniel, and continue to live faithfully. And I just want to narrow in on that idea this morning as we uh, think about the church and we celebrate Pentecost Sunday and the birth of the church through the Holy Spirit. I want to talk this morning about the battle that the church is called into, the battle that the church is called into. And uh, basically what God is saying to Daniel and what I think his message is to the church is, hey, at the end, you're going to rest, but it's not time to rest yet. So while you're still in the world, I've got work for you to do. And as long as you have breath in your lungs and you are walking around living, breathing, you are to be on mission, living faithfully for my purposes. If you remember uh, in chapter 12, God said, the wise will turn many to righteousness and the wise will keep to the way of the Lord. They won't turn from the covenant. So in the meantime, from now, this is where we are right now. We're waiting for the end, but while we wait, God has called us into a very real mission and a very real battle. Uh, Many of us will be familiar with the story from Greek mythology uh, of the Battle of Troy, or maybe you saw the epic film starring Brad Pitt and Eric Bana and basically all the handsome guys, and it was... A bloody and epic film. Uh, But if you know the story, uh, as the legend goes, the Greeks attacked the city of Troy, which had massive walls and really strong horsemen and really strong infantry. And the Greeks basically, for 10 whole years, they tried to attack and overtake the walls of Troy and destroy the city. 10 whole years. And they could not take any ground. They couldn't break down the walls. They couldn't get inside the city. They couldn't defeat the Trojan army. And so eventually, after 10 years, it came to a point where one very smart Greek had the idea that if we're going to defeat these guys, what we need to do is we need to make them think that the battle is over. We need to make them think that they have won the war, that we've lost, and that they've won. And so if you know the story, what they did, they pretended to be defeated, they pretended to sail uh, most of the ships home, back to Greece, but what they actually did was build a large wooden hollow horse, the Trojan horse. And what that was, it was a symbol for the Trojans of peace. The war is over. They've won. The Greeks were going to falsely offer it to the Trojans as a peace offering, saying, hey, you guys have won. You've got it. We're going home. The battle's over. But as you know, Hollow Horse, all the strongest, best Greek soldiers, they went inside the horse. The Trojans fell for it. They took it in. Awesome. We won the war. Good. And what they did was they laid their arms down they dropped their weapons, they took off their armor, they said the battle is over. And as we read uh, from Homer uh, is that they partied, they indulged in drunken revelries, and they fell asleep in a drunken stupor. So they partied hard, the battle was over, they kicked their feet up, they chilled out, they relaxed, the battle's done. And what happened was while they were in a drunken sleep, the Greek soldiers, they climb out of the hollow horse, and as The Trojans, without any armor, without any weapons, were just chilling out, sleeping. Middle of the night, the Greeks overtake them. They kill every one of them. They set the city on fire, and they win the war. And the point is this. There is a very, very stark difference between the way that we live when we think that it's peacetime and that the battle is over and when we realize that the battle is still over going on, that we are in the middle of a war zone, right? And I think this is a very important message for us to hear from God's word this morning, particularly in this time, because I think over the last year, year and a half, whatever this weird season has been, it is actually really, really easy for us as a church to forget about the mission that God has placed us in, to fall asleep a little bit, to drift, to get casual in our walk with God to think that the battle is already won. Because we know, we know that God has ultimately won the war, right? Ephesians 1, he has thrown the enemy down at his feet. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ultimately, God has won. But we can forget that while we are still living here, our mission as the church is to be carrying out the purposes of God. And what God says to us in this sixth chapter of Ephesians, what Paul says, is that, hey, church, hey, Christian, anywhere that you go, doesn't matter where you go. You could be in Cloverdale, okay? I could be in the frozen, dead, disgusting, awful Arctic tundra, Edmonton, okay? I could be overseas back in Australia on the shore with the shocks and the spiders and the snakes, doesn't matter. Wherever you go in the world, there the battle follows you. Right? And it's really easy for us as a church to fall asleep, okay, to let our guard down, to think the battle is over. We can just chill out, kick our feet up, and wait for heaven. But what the Bible reminds us of over and over and over again is that, as one preacher put it, God does not beam us up out of the world like Star Trek when we believe. He doesn't beam us out. He armors us up, and he parachutes us in. We read in John's gospel, do not take them out of the world. Okay, we're to be in the world, just not of the world. God armors us up and he sends us in. And so as a church this morning, I think it's just an important question to ask, are we asleep over these last several months where it's been weird trying to figure out how to meet, trying to figure out how to do discipleship, where maybe your personal habits and your personal patterns of life and your rhythms have been all thrown through a loop and messed up? Have you fallen asleep? Have you started to just drift? Or are we battle ready? And the amazing, amazing news is that God has already won the victory ultimately and that he provides everything that we need to live a life of faithfulness and godliness and mission in the world. He has given us what he calls his armor. He says, you're called into a spiritual battle. You need armor that is spiritual and it is of God. And what Paul writes here is actually taken from his reading of the prophet Isaiah. He reads in uh, chapter 11, chapter 52, and chapter 59 about how Yahweh is a warrior God who puts on his armor and sees the plight of his people and goes to rescue them. And so Paul applies this to the church. He says, believers, church, don't fall asleep. Be alert, be on guard. Don't let your armor down. Put the armor of God on because wherever you go, you are caught up in the middle of a spiritual war zone. Let's read this. that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. So what Paul wants us to know is that there is a spiritual reality. So this, if we haven't thought much about it, uh, can make us a little uncomfortable, especially in uh, Western uh, buttoned up sort of Canadian mindset. We don't like to think a whole lot about this, but there is a very real spiritual reality behind the veil of what we see and touch and taste experientially in the world. I think we're often unaware of that. But the relationships that we go about in life, the things that we do, our temptations, our loves, our affections, everything. What the Bible says is that there is actual, uh, behind the veil, behind the realm, there's a spiritual, a heavenly place. And we read in the Bible that Satan actually has, and uh, he's an evil, uh, evil spirit, and he actually has spirits of darkness and of evil that actually have some degree of power in this world to work through certain people and work through certain systems and that there is a whole spiritual realm, spiritual battle going on behind the scenes of what we can see and touch. That's why he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, that we can stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Why? Because we don't wrestle against just flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So this present darkness, there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies that are behind some of the things that we actually experience in life. And so I wonder why we aren't more aware of that. Why we don't think more about it because the Bible talks about this all the time. It says, be on guard in first Peter uh, five, eight. It says we have a spiritual enemy who is like a roaring lion looking to devour us in revelation 12, nine, a great dragon, an ancient serpent, we read in Hebrews 2.14 that he has the power of death. We read in John 10.10 10, that he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy us. We read in John 8.44 that he is a murderer and the father of all lies. We read in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that he leads our thoughts astray, away from devotion to Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that he wants to blind our minds to keep us from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel and we read in Ephesians 2 two that he operates in and through human agency in the world. When we were dead in our, our trespasses and sins, we were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. There's a very real spiritual battle going on behind the scenes, but why aren't we more aware of it? Because I think we're conditioned to think about the devil, Satan, the enemy, and we're conditioned to think about spiritual realities uh, from art and from Movies for the most part, right? And so we think Satan, we think devil, enemy spiritually. We think about a guy with gargoyle wings and horns and fangs dripping with blood and going, bah, something more scary than that, probably. But we think of that as Satan, right? Like what we see in cartoons. And we think of spiritual forces and we think of things like paranormal activity or whatever, dumb ghost movies where a guy's sleeping and there's a camera and someone grabs his ankle and pulls him out of the bed or creepy little girl in a nightgown with black bangs like floating down the hallway or some weird spiritual stuff like that, right? That's what we think of as spiritual warfare, but Paul's going, no, 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 no. Verse 11, it's the schemes of the devil. It's subtle, he's crafty, he's deceitful. The way that spiritual forces and the enemy works is through things that look good, things that appear shiny and nice and tempting. That's why 2 Corinthians says that He disguises himself as an angel of light. It's through our affections. It's through our temptations. It's through the things that we do and think about. If it was just a big scary monster, we would see him and be like, oh, that's Satan. I don't want anything to do with that. He gets us with deceit through things that look good, through our materialism, through the things that we settle for in life. That's why C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, I would highly recommend it. Great book. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's about an older mentor demon who's mentoring this younger demon about how to destroy the souls of human beings. And this older mentor demon says to the younger one who's really zealous and wants to, he wants to get people to commit heinous crimes and murder and adultery and do all these really obviously bad things. And the older demon says, no, 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 no. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, right? This is the insidious nature of how Satan works. He doesn't often work, he does, but he doesn't most often for most of us work in the big temptations to try and get you to kill someone or try and get you to do something else that's big and awful. That might be too obvious. He works through the gradual, the comfortable, the slow. How can he get his hooks into your heart, what you love, your affections, what you want to do, what you think about, and slowly, comfortably, softly lead you off the path of righteousness, down a road that is leading to destruction The scary thing is that we can live, it's very possible for us to live a very prosperous, very healthy, very comfortable, very easy life and wake up in hell. And our enemy, in fact, would love nothing more. It's easy for us to fall asleep and to get casual right? But Paul is saying, church, listen, stay alert. This is real. There's a very real spiritual reality behind the scenes. There's a very real spiritual enemy coming at you, and there is a mission in the world that you are called to as the church of God for the glory of God in the world. And this is the difference that we see, right, in mindset. The difference between viewing the church—you might have heard this analogy before—viewing the church as a cruise ship— sort of a country club experience and viewing the church as a battleship, a war vessel, right? So if our view of church is that God saves us, gives us this ticket to heaven that we will one day cash in, but then the rest of our life is just, woo! thank goodness we are saved. We're safe in this world. Good. God's got us in the end. So until then, we can just kick our feet up. It's like a cruise ship. Just try to enjoy life. Enjoy the nice things. Have a drink. Get that Hawaiian shirt on. Kick those shoes off. Flip-flops in the sun, get your tan on, just relax, right? Just take it slow, relax. It's all good. There's no battle. There's no war. That's done. I'm just going to live for me. I'm going to have fun. Church can become just a nice country club, drink some nice coffee, have some nice food, whatever, socialize. Paul says, no, no, no. The church, what you are called to is much more like a battleship. It's much more like a war vessel. It's not feet up, chilling in the sun. In a battleship, there's intentionality. There's a sense of mission, right? If a cruise ship gets attacked, that thing's going down real quick. But a battleship, everybody knows their role. They've identified their gifts. They're filled with the spirit, right? They know what their job is. They know where they're going. They know that there's battle at hand. They know that there are enemies abroad. And so when the alarm sounds and there is attack, it's not a surprise. They're ready for it because they expected it and they can execute together as a team. That is the picture of the church. There needs to be a sense of urgency, a sense of mission, a sense that we are in a very real way in a battle. So we are in this battle, this spiritual warfare, but we are not to fear because we know that God has ultimately won the war. But the enemy still, even though he is defeated, still likes to throw flaming arrows at us. But the good news is that God has... For us, church provided everything, absolutely everything that we need to live a faithful life, a life on mission, and a life to stand firm against the spiritual enemy that we have. He's provided this spiritual armor, this armor of God, but it's no good if we just leave it sitting there. We need to put it on. And that's Paul's command to us. And so he says the first thing, verse 14 Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So the, the belt at that time wouldn't be so much a leather strap sort of belt. It would be more like a tunic. So kind of like an underwear, under your armor sort of tunic. And what it would do would be to keep everything uh, tight. So there are no loose ends, no floppy clothes, things like that hanging out of your garment because when you're going into battle, you can't have things hanging all about. This is to tie up the loose ends. It holds everything together. And so Paul is saying that truth The truth of God is what holds it all together when you're out there doing battle. We read in John 8, 44 about the devil. We read, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan speaks lies. There is no truth in him. He cannot tell the truth. He's the father of lies. What he does is try to bend the truth, obscure the truth, distort the truth, and get us to believe lies about who we are and who God is and who we are in relation to God, and tries to get us to speak and to live lies rather than the truth. Paul says, be aware of this. He is going to try and twist the truth. He's going to try to tell you that God maybe doesn't love you. He's going to try to get you to believe the lie that you can save yourself, that you can be saved, that you can be made righteous by anything but the saving love and the spirit of God through Christ. We need to be ready for this as the truth because what Jesus said is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our enemy would love us to believe the lies that are very popular right now in our culture that there actually is no truth. There's no such thing, right? It's all just subjective. Hey, you can have your truth. You can have your truth. I can have my truth. It doesn't matter. We can all just have our truth and they can coexist, right? And there's no actual higher truth that needs to determine what we believe as true and we need to come under the authority of that. No, 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 that's mean. Everyone just have your own truth. There's no confidence in that. There's no confidence in that. We need a transcendent truth and God says, the word says that that truth is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Right? And Jesus himself said, abide in me and you will know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The enemy would love us to stay in the dark, enslaved, not knowing the truth. Jesus says, I want to set you free with the truth of the gospel. And then he says, as you abide in me, watch me, listen from me, learn from me. I want to teach you by my spirit how to not just know the truth and be free, but then to learn the truth, live the truth, speak the truth out in love toward other people, right? Right? And so we are called to be people with inward integrity who not only know the truth, but speak the truth in love and live the truth. As long as we are lying, as long as we are practicing deceit and deception and hypocrisy and other dishonest things in the world, we are playing the enemy's game and we will not beat him at his own game. Jesus says, know the truth, speak the truth, live the truth, in love. We are to be people of inward integrity to drive back the darkness of the lies in the world, the lies of the enemy, with the light of the truth of the gospel. Next in verse 14, it says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate, solid, protects the chest, front and back. It protects the internal organs, the vital organs of the body, right? Particularly the heart. What Paul is saying is, The righteousness of Christ and the righteousness which with he has called you to live is to be your protection of your heart, your affections, what you love, right? Because what we love most dearly and what we care about most sincerely is going to determine ultimately the course of our life. That is why Jesus constantly goes after the heart, right? Right? He's not about just Christianity, it's not about sin management. It's not about just cleaning ourselves up and trying to be better. That's not enough. We need a heart change, right? That's why Jesus always before he goes after just the sin on the surface, he wants to get at the the heart issue underneath. He uses the analogy of a tree, right? A tree is always going to produce the fruit of the type of tree that it is. So it's useless to to try and just keep chopping down the fruit on the surface and get rid of the fruit, the sin, whatever that might be without dealing with the root of the issue. Jesus says, you don't need to just manage the fruit. You need to become a different type of tree. You need a new heart. And that's what he gives us, right? He imparts his righteousness to us. That's the gospel. There should be no such thing as a self-righteous Christian, right? That should be an oxymoron. Because the whole point of the gospel is that we can never live without Jesus righteously enough, but because of how much he loves us, he lived perfectly righteous, the perfect life for us, died his substitutionary death for us on the cross, and by faith in that, gives us his righteousness that we put on. That's the story of the prodigal son, if you remember. The son runs away. He hates God. He spoils all the money, ruins his life, scorns his father, runs away, but then he comes back, right? And this beautiful picture, what does the father do? He sees him off in the distance and he runs toward him and he embraces him and he puts a ring on his finger and what does he do? He gets the cloak, right? He gets the coat, which would have been probably the most expensive thing in the house, the nicest thing. It belonged to the father and he wraps it around the son, That's the picture of what God does for us in Jesus. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus that we could not earn. But what is Paul talking about with this breastplate? He says, protect your heart. So stand firm in the righteousness that is yours through Christ, but also stand firm with this breastplate and protect your heart, protect your affections and what you love because that is ultimately going to determine what you do. Right? And so the enemy would love to get his hooks into our heart and change what we love to influence what we love with little jabs, little arrows. Right? But we are called to be set apart and to pursue righteousness. What do you care about? Paul says, keep a close watch, church, on what you love, where your affections are, what you actually care about most. Matthew 6 gives us great uh, insight to this. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Right? He says, don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothes. Your father will provide. Right? He says, don't lay up treasure on earth where moths and rust will destroy. For us, it's probably bitcoins. I don't know what destroys bitcoins, virtual moths. But he says, lay up treasure in heaven, right? Care about eternal things. What does he say? He says, seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What do you care about? What are you seeking? What are you actually going after with your life in the world? What's got a hold of your heart? Because this is where it starts, right? Do you care more about your reputation? Do you care more about your image? Do you care more about your stuff, your materials, your trinkets? These things that are ultimately going to end up in a trash pile. Then you care about eternal things, the souls of men, the glory of God. Again, in Screwtape Letters, Mentor Demon says to the younger one, if the middle years of a human's life prove prosperous, our position is even stronger because prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in the world. Well, really, it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his developing sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of really being at home in the earth, which is just what we want. Being at home in the earth. Paul says, Christians, church, keep a close watch on your heart, on what you love. God has set you apart to pursue Righteousness to live differently than the world, to live for an eternal kingdom, not a temporal one. Next, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I call this putting on your gospel shoes. I said that to a guy once, and it was right after Kanye West had said that he'd become a Christian. I said I mentioned gospel shoes, and he's like, Oh, those are Kanye, those are the new Yeezys, right? Like, no no gospel shoes okay these would have been half boots made of leather they would have had a stake or a little mini nail driven through the bottom of them in order to on the feet of the soldier keep them standing firm against the enemy pushing against them so to stand firm but also to take ground to march forward over difficult terrain because they had traction through these boots to push forward but they were also very lightweight to keep the soldier quick on their feet And so these are for defense to stand firm, but they're also to take ground. And that's what the gospel does when it gets a hold of our heart. It helps us to stand firm and take ground at the same time, stand firm against the onslaught of the enemy and to push forward. And Paul calls it the gospel of peace. He's already broken down what is the gospel of peace. In Ephesians chapter two, he said there was a dividing wall of hostility between us and God because of our sin. There was a dividing wall of hostility between different races, Jew and Gentile, but because of the blood of Christ, that dividing wall is broken down. It is destroyed. And now through faith in Jesus, We can have peace with God, forgiveness for our sins, and we can have peace with other people. Peace with God, peace with people. This is the good news of peace. It is available through the power of the blood of Jesus. This is how God is gathering a church, a family for himself through the work of Jesus, his blood to knock down the dividing walls of hostility. And Paul says this beautiful thing in chapter two, where he says, those who are far off and those who are near. And I think sometimes we can think that we are way too far off to be saved by God. But the one writing this is Paul. He was a terrorist. He was having Christians murdered before God got a hold of him. That's the man who's writing, nobody's too far off. Just listen, you are not too far off to be brought in by the powerful saving arm of God through the blood of Jesus. Those who are far and those who are near gospel shoes, readiness, light on our feet, sturdy. Okay, we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ when the enemy attacks. We remind ourselves that we belong to him. God's creating this family for himself where our identity chiefly is no longer in our, our gender. It's no longer in our race. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. It's no longer in our social status, slave or free. All are welcomed into the family of God and our identity primarily now is that we are a child of God and he is a good father who provides and protects. That'll help us stand firm, but these light and sturdy shoes of the gospel with stability will help us to go forward. I love this in uh, In Isaiah 52, 7, this is the picture, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Right? This is the good news that all, no matter how near, how far off, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter how much of a mess that you have made of your life, whatever you have done, nobody is too far off to be saved by God and have peace with God and peace with fellow men. This is the good news. And that good news just makes you light on your feet and sends you out. How can you not go and tell the world? This is the picture of uh, a herald, somebody who made announcements in the streets in Rome. When there was a victory, he would run as fast as he can through the streets shouting, there's peace. We've won the victory. That's the picture that's the church. That's the Christian on mission, running out into the world, light feet, running through danger, running through whatever, because we've got to get this good news to the world that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. There's peace with God. Jesus said, go, go to the nations, preach the gospel. He said, go, go make disciples of all nations, gospel shoes, readiness. There's a really, really powerful picture of this um, in a story, you might have heard it, you might have seen the movie where uh, Mel Gibson directed it, and he depicted the story of this soldier called Desmond Doss. And he fought in the Battle of Okinawa, and uh, he was part of the, the U.S. military. He was a medic. And there was a famous battle called the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge in the Battle of Okinawa, where they, there was a steep ridge that you had to climb up with a bunch of ropes, really steep cliff. And then on the top, that's where the battle was fought, and they were, the Americans were trying to take... Uh, This land. It was very key to winning the war. But as they climb up these ropes, the American army, there's this surprise onslaught from the Japanese forces and they get absolutely lit up. They get just wrecked. A good majority of them get killed, many of them get wounded, and the rest of them, they run. They run back down the hill to safety. Desmond Dawes, who's actually a conscientious objector, so he didn't carry a gun even. But instead, while everybody else was running down the hill, he didn't rest. And for one full night, he worked through the night. While everyone was running the other way, he ran straight into the field of battle because there were wounded soldiers laying there dying. And he works through the night one by one. He picks these soldiers up, throws them over his shoulder, brings them down to the hill, propels them down with a rope. He holds this rope that slides down his hands. It's a true story. And he stops and he goes, takes a breath and he goes, Lord, help me get one more. And then back to the battlefield, grabs another one, drags him to this hill. Gunfire, grenades going off, drags him, gets him down to safety. Help me get one more, Lord. He runs back in. Help me get one more, Lord. Help me get one more, Lord. Through the night, he saved 75 wounded American soldiers. And by the end of it, he is bloody he's beat up he's broken his hands have basically no skin on them because he's holding this rope getting these guys down to safety his feet are exhausted and he says glory to god i didn't save one of those guys god saved him that's the picture ready feet when everyone else is running from the battle running to the battle how beautiful are the feet Put on those gospel shoes. Next verse 16, we get the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So don't think Captain America. Think a big door-sized shield, really solid, really heavy, coated in leather, soaked in water, so that when the enemy shot fiery arrows, they would hit this soaked water surface of leather and it would put out the flames of the arrows. What are the arrows the flaming arrows of the enemy, temptation, trials. What is the shield? It's trust in the faithfulness of God in the face of temptations and trials. So what the enemy will do, it's what he's done from the beginning and what he's still doing today, is in temptation, he would love to get us to doubt the character and the promises of God. Right? That's what he did in the garden when God says, hey Adam and Eve, just, I've given you everything. I love you. Just don't eat from that one tree. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. And then the serpent comes along and what does he say? Did God really say that? Did God really say? Well, he doesn't want the best for you. He just knows that your eyes will be open if you eat it. You should go ahead and eat it, right? That's the same trick that he's still playing today. When we are tempted with something that we know we should not do because we're called to pursue righteousness. We're called to pursue the glory of God. When we're tempted with something, that's what the enemy will do. Did God really say? He's holding out on you. The enemy would love us to believe that God is somehow holding out, holding blessings back from us, right? That he doesn't actually know best and he doesn't actually want the best for us. How do we put out those arrows? The shield of faith remembering the million times and the million ways that God has always been faithful, the million ways that he has provided his promise that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he loves you and that he wants the best for you. Do you believe that? And what do we do when we face doubt? And the enemy comes in and wants us to believe that God's not going to come through. This is what happened with Abraham and Sarah, right? God said, I'm going to bless the nations through children, through you. They got tired of waiting, so they ran ahead and they had Ishmael. When God was really saying, hold up, wait, wait on me. I've got Isaac coming. We need to wait on the Lord and trust in his goodness. Faith in the faithfulness of God. Isaiah 40, 28 to 31 says, it tells us, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord... They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And next verse 17, put on the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Uh, One author says most of life's battles are won or lost in the mind. I think that's true. I think that's why the word tells us in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That's why Philippians 4 tells us whatever is true, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think, think about these things. 2 Corinthians 10 says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. The helmet of salvation, what protects our mind, what protects us from in doubt, from anxiety, from all the attacks of the enemy through which he would love to get a foothold, is the hope of salvation, the knowledge, the constant reminding ourselves that God has saved us. Now he's saved us from the slavery of sin and death and he will save us on the last day. We are secure in him. Anything, anything can happen to me here and now in this life, but you cannot touch my soul. You cannot touch my eternity because the God who holds the world is holding on to me and I'm a child of that God. Knowing that ought to make us fearless. Put on this assurance every day and take up the sword of the spirit. Verse 17, which is the word of God. This can be both scripture, the written word and the gospel message, the spoken word. Both of those things go go forward with the power and the presence of God. That's why so many people have been changed from the inside out and saved by God just reading this. I've seen that happen time after time, just reading this and the Holy Spirit drops because these aren't just words. This isn't just knowledge These are the very words of God straight to the heart, right? I quote this verse. I'm pretty sure every time I preach, but that's okay. It's the best. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. These are not just words. This is the very word of God empowered by his spirit, and it cuts us. It's defensive. Okay, so if you remember Jesus in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil, what does he do three times? He quotes scripture back to the devil, right? When Satan says to him, turn these stones to bread, he says, what does he say? He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan actually quotes scripture to Jesus and says, throw yourself off of here and the angels will come and save you. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan says, bow down and worship me. I'll give you the whole kingdom. Jesus says what? It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The word of God by the spirit of God is our defense and it's also our offense. It goes forward with power, cutting to the heart, cutting through the defenses of doubt that we have about God, creating faith in the heart, belief in the mind. Do we know what God is saying? Are we immersed in this word? Are we changed by this word? Are we taking in this word constantly? It has power. And this is what we use to be on mission, right? We don't just stand up here and it would be useless for me to get up here and tell you my opinion. You don't want to hear my opinion about nothing, right? You need the authority of the word of God, the power of the word of God and the prayer every single Sunday when we do this is that God actually speaks through this to cut to the heart in a good way to change you, to actually motivate you and teach you and take you deeper to know him more and to do his will in the world. And when you go to try and and share this gospel, do it by the word. This is where the power is, the sword of the spirit. Last thing, Paul closes with this. Verse 18 to 20, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it what boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul says prayer is what holds this all together. Church, can we be a praying church? Can we be a people who are just immersed in prayer, soaked in prayer? Look at that word, four times he says all, right? All. All prayers, all saints, all times, all perseverance. But what does that word mean, all? It means all. What does it mean in Greek? It means all. All. All prayers, all saints, all the time, all situations. And I wonder what would happen as a church, as a people of God, if we prayed as much as we complained about things? Every time we complain, what if we prayed for that thing? Every time we talked about somebody, what if we prayed for that person? Every time we talked about the state of the world and how frustrating it is to us, what if we prayed for it? What if all of life was soaked in prayer? I think that's what Paul's getting at, persevere in prayer. When you don't feel like it, When it's hard, when you're tired, persevere in prayer. He says, stay alert, church, stay awake. And if you've fallen asleep, wake up. There's a battle going on. That's the call to us. Stay awake and pray for me, Paul says, that what? That I might loose my chains and go free and get out of prison? No, pray for me that I might declare and proclaim the gospel boldly, not arrogantly, not brashly, but with love and compassion for a dying world. With urgency. That's what boldness is. It's urgency. It's the willingness to say and have the courage to say, I don't care if this makes me uncomfortable. I don't care if I'm afraid of what people are going to think of the pushback that I'm inevitably going to get, that Paul gets. He's in chains for doing this. But there's an urgency because the time is short. Pray for me, Paul says, that without fear, I might go forward and proclaim the gospel with boldness. The war is won. God's already won it. That will either make us lazy, church, or that will make us bold and fearless to run not away from the battle but into the battle because we've got nothing to lose and the stakes are high because we care more about the eternal, more about the souls, the eternity of people than we care about our momentary reputation, our momentary comfort, our ease, our pleasure. Would we, like Paul, pray that we can have opportunities to boldly hold out this gospel of peace to a hurting and divided world. Crossroads, let's not be a people who have every provision from God, every piece of armor available to us, but fail to put it on. We have everything we need to fight well, to fight faithfully, to wake up, to be alert, to be on guard, and to be on mission in the world for the glory of God. Let's take hold of that. Let's be ready. Let's engage the fight. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you are in the world calling a people to yourself, Lord, for your glory and that you've called us to be on mission and participate with you in that, Lord. And I just pray for each individual, for our church right now, Father, that you would wake us up. Let us not fall asleep, Lord. Where we have fallen asleep, would you wake us up? Would you help us where we have laid down and rested, Father, to stand, where we have neglected to put on these pieces of spiritual armor that you have provided. Would you help us to take them and put them on again, Lord, with zeal, with new passion for your name, for your glory, that we might stand firm against the attacks of the enemy. Would you do this great work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, for your glory. Amen.